Psalm 77, and this evening we'll be looking particularly at verses 7 to 9, these questions that Asaph asks of God. Psalm 77, to the choir master, according to Judithan, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favourable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the ears of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let's turn together to Exodus chapter 34. I want to read nine verses here. Exodus chapter 34. It's not really a surprise that the second book of the Bible is foundational to much of what comes after it. And there are at least two especially foundational moments told in Exodus. The first is what we sang of at the start and we're thinking of this morning, the crossing of well, the whole Exodus, the deliverance from Egypt and the crossing the Red Sea. But another moment, another key moment that, that echoes throughout the rest of the Bible is what happens here in Exodus 34. It's, it's the high point of the Old Testament revealing of God. Exodus 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning. And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai 
as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favour in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. Come with me to Psalm 77. We'll be looking this evening at verses 7 to 9. Taking another closer look at these questions that are asked. I was listening recently to an interview with a best-selling psychiatrist who's an expert in trauma. It was fascinating on many levels, but one thing he said in particular struck me. He said this, We are communal creatures, and we survive terrible things by community. We are communal creatures, and we survive terrible things by community. He used the example of... The 9-11 attacks in New York, that is an objectively traumatic event, but actually, he said, it was less likely to cause trauma in individuals because it was shared by a community. He said people were able to get together. New York had a spectacularly effective way of dealing with the trauma of 9-11. So listen to how he explained that. When you go through a terrible reality, like 9-11, oftentimes people get very close together because it's out there. Everybody can see it. People help each other out. And once you have the community to go with you, you're not ashamed of yourself anymore because your neighbor may have the same feelings of terror and fear that you have, and you don't feel crazy. And you don't feel like you're worthy of exclusion. We are communal creatures, social creatures, and we survive terrible things by community, socially. Now this man is not a Christian, but I believe what he's saying is an insight given first by God in his word, because it results from our creation in the image of God. God is in himself a social being. He's Trinitarian. He's a relational being. And we're made in his image. Andrew Collins said at the Family Day conference a few weeks ago, the best of what secular counselling says, Christ says better. And so what, what this man is, is saying, it's, it's an echo of what God teaches us in his word. We are communal creatures and we survive terrible things by community. I thought that was really interesting. But the flip side of it is that something that is much more private, much more individual, he says, 
is very reliably traumatic. When we feel alone in an experience, the pain is deeper. He would say it's more likely to lead to trauma. Why do I start with this tonight? Well, as we saw this morning, Psalm 77 is an expression of deep pain. Verse 2, my soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. Verses 7 to 9. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favourable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion Here's a song that is written for the day of trouble, written in the day of trouble. And a a scan down an online database of sermons gives titles like this. Sermons on Psalm 77. When God disappoints you. What do I do when normal is gone? The symptoms and solutions of depression. The dark night of the soul. When I'm in despair, sermon for the miserable man. That last one is Spurgeon's sermon title. Listen to what Spurgeon says about the psalm. Spurgeon was a man uh, who suffered frequent bouts of deep depression. He said of his bouts of depression, I am subject to depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Personally, I know that there is nothing on earth that the human frame can suffer that can be compared to despondency and frustration of mind. That was his experience. And here's what he says as he reflects on Psalm 77. Listen to his meditations on Psalm 77. Some of us know what it is, both physically and spiritually, to be compelled to use these words, Psalm 77. No respite has been afforded us by the silence of the night. Our bed has been a rack to us. Our body has been in torment and our spirit in anguish. On verse 3, He is wretched indeed whose memories of God prove distressing to him. Yet the best of men know the depth of this abyss. He's saying the best of men are not immune from this. It is in such a case that death is coveted as a relief, for life becomes an intolerable burden. He finishes his comments on on the opening verses of the psalm with this. Alas, my God, the writer of this book, his book on Psalms, well knows what thy servant Asaph meant. For his soul is familiar with the way of grief. Deep glens and lonely caves of soul depressions. My spirit knows full well your awful glooms. Here's a song for the day of trouble. A song for the day of trouble. And I think all of us 
know at least a little of what Asaph is talking about in this psalm. And a little, at least, of what Spurgeon describes in his reflections on Psalm 77. And some of you know it keenly and intimately. Alas, I know well what thy servant Asaph meant. For my soul is familiar with the way of grief. Deep glens and lonely caves of soul depressions. My spirit knows full well your awful glooms. And friends, here's the, the point. As we pass through days of trouble like that, you are not alone. As we said at the start, being alone heightens the pain and breeds trauma. That's what the psychologists and psychiatrists of our world say. But the Christian, as he passes through, as he or she passes through days like that, is not alone. We're in the company of Asaph. We're in the company of Spurgeon. We're in the company of many saints. Here's a song given to be sung in public worship. Here's a song given to be sung by God's people over the last 3,000 years. Above all, like we said this morning, here's a song sung by Christ. The Christian is not alone. So you don't need to be ashamed of yourself. Other people feel the terror and fear that you feel and have felt. You don't need to feel crazy and you don't need to feel like you are worthy of exclusion. You're not alone. And so with all that in mind, I want us to turn tonight to the most heart-rending part of the psalm, the questions here in verses 7 to 9. As we said this morning, these are shocking questions. It would be so easy to read these questions and, and to think or even to say, believers don't think like this. Believers don't say these words. There, there's a sense as well, which I think, to even have these words as part of Holy Scripture, that's shocking. To include this charge sheet against God in Scripture, that, that's quite shocking. But, like we said this morning, they are not unreasonable questions. Sometimes our mind can be so fogged up that this is what we're left asking. Sometimes our memories can be so bad. Sometimes the trauma can be so deep. And these are probably questions that have come into all of our minds at some point. And they may be questions that are blocking your mind even now, tonight. But... They are all questions, six questions, that have an answer. They all have an answer. Before we think of the answers, uh, there's something more to be said. There's something particularly unsettling about these questions. The issues he raises in these three verses, these six questions, touch on what God says about himself in Exodus 34 that we read earlier. The Lord, the Lord, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, 
abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Gentle and lowly, Dan Ortland, in that book, you remember he pinpoints um, this event in, in Exodus 34 as, as the uh, high point of the revealing of God in the Old Testament. You know, it's like a repeating chorus line in the Old Testament. We see this description coming out again and again. If you want to know what God is like, turn to these verses in Exodus 34. But now, here in Psalm 17, these questions are being asked. The Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love. Has his steadfast love ceased? The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. Has he forgotten to be gracious? The Lord, the Lord, merciful or compassionate. Has he in anger shut up his compassion and his mercy? Do you see what's so profoundly unsettling about these questions? Is God who he told us he is? Is God who he told us he is? Do you ever find yourself asking that question? It's an unsettling question. These are unsettling questions. But they have answers. Let's answer them. Let's answer them because, as one writer says, these questions are suggested by fear, but they also cure fear. It's a blessing to have enough grace to look such questions in the face. For their answer is self-evident and eminently fitted to cheer the heart. To answer these questions is to encourage ourselves. So let's answer them. Let's answer them. Question one. Will the Lord spurn forever? Will the Lord reject us forever? Sometimes it feels like God is rebuffing our advances constantly turning away from us. Like a husband that has lost interest in his wife or a parent who's walked out on their children. So is this the case? Does the Lord reject his people? Well, Christian brother or sister, answer these questions. Why would God reject you? Why would God reject you? I'm sure your answer is something along the lines of, because of my sin. My sin, my, my constant failings, even my deliberate failings. He knows what I'm like. That's why he would reject me. But answer this as well. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To deal with your sins. How do you know he dealt fully with your sin? Because the tomb is empty. He rose. So has God any reason to reject you? Nope. None whatsoever. The tomb is empty. The sacrifice is accepted. There is no reason for him to reject you. Will the Lord reject forever? No, he will not. Question two, will he never again be favorable? Maybe we don't feel loved by God. Maybe we only feel pain in our lives. 
even to the point that it's like he's deliberately making life miserable. That's the point Job got to. He feels that God is deliberately picking on him and making him miserable. It's like it's a sunny day outside and everybody else is enjoying the sun. The sun of God's blessing and we're sitting in the shadow, shivering. Will he never again be favourable? Well, again, Christian brother, sister, why would he not be favourable to you? Why would God not, why would God not show favour to you? You are by faith in Christ. In Christ. Isn't that Paul's favourite way of describing a Christian? In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And what that means is that when God looks at you, he sees Christ. He, he, he can't look at you without, as it were, looking at Christ. When he sees one, he sees the other. When he sees one, he sees the other. And what does he see when he looks at Christ? Well, do you remember the repeated voice from heaven? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's his verdict on Christ, and you are in Christ. That is his verdict on you. What does he say about you? Exactly the same. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. With him, with her, I'm well pleased. Will he never again be favorable? He will always be favorable. Question three. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Has he hit his limit with us? Is it the end of his tether? To use the Bible's marriage language as a time for a divorce. Well, Christian brother or sister, to, to, to ask the question is to answer it. This is steadfast love. Unstoppable love. Unmoving love. Tied in contractual love this is till death do us part love in fact it's, it's better than that this is to the grave and beyond love it's, it's not even until death do us part it's beyond that this is love that cannot cease this is love that's guaranteed by the life of his son it's as possible for this love to cease as it is for Christ to be brought out of glory, brought down from glory. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? It can never cease. It can never cease. Question four. Are his promises at an end for all time? We wait and we pray, and we pray and we wait, and we wait and we wait, and we pray and we pray. And what God told us he would do, he, would, he doesn't seem to be doing. And we have his promises. They're like checks. But we fear that these are checks that will bounce. And I think that the seeming failure of God's promises is one of the hardest things to endure and, and, and deal with in the Christian life. I think it's one of the hardest things to deal with. Are his promises at an end for all time? Christian brother, sister. Every promise in this book 
a sign than the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. In Jesus, every promise has a yes, has a guarantee. God cannot say no to his promise. To say no, to withhold something as promised, would be to deny his son. One writer says, the being of God may as well fail as the promise of God. For God not to do what he's promised would be for him to be ungodded. Are his promises at an end for all time? They can't be. They're yes in Jesus. Question five. In verse nine, has he forgotten to be gracious? Maybe there'll come a day, maybe we're at a day where he looks at me down here in my life and he forgets about Jesus. Maybe there'll come a day where he'll, for a moment he'll treat me as I deserve, not according to grace. He'll deal with us according to our law-keeping. And we'd be doomed if he did that. Has he forgotten to be gracious? Christian brother or sister, Jesus Christ is always at the right hand of God the Father. The Father cannot forget about Jesus. He's always there. But more than that, Jesus Christ is there at the right hand of God, always pleading and praying for us. You know, so even if, bizarrely, hypothetically, it was possible for God the Father to forget about us and to forget about our relationship to Jesus and to not remember to deal graciously with us, even if that was hypothetical, uh, hypothetically possible, Jesus won't let him. It is not possible for him to forget to be gracious. Because Christ ever lives at his right hand to intercede for us. Has God forgotten to be gracious? He cannot forget. The last question. Has he in anger shut up compassion? Perhaps our sins have provoked him too far. Perhaps our unbelieving, idol-chasing hearts that are so easily satisfied with spiritually poisonous drinking water have provoked him and pushed him too far. And it's time he's decided to turn the taps of compassion off to teach us a lesson. He shut up compassion. It would be easy to think this, because we know, and the Bible teaches clearly, that there is a fatherly anger that is stirred by our sin. And he disciplines us, not to penalize us, but to improve us. Not to make us pay the debt, but to purify us. But we can easily think of that and think, well, surely as he does that, he will he'll close up the doors of compassion towards us. Christian brother or sister, Christ on the cross had the door of compassion closed to him. And he felt nothing but God's wrath and fury, not an ounce of compassion. But that storehouse of God's anger on his people is empty. 
It's spent. It's all burned up. There's no reason for God to shut the door of compassion. It's, it, it, it's, his anger is spent. But more than that, when Christ came out of the, the, the tomb, came out the door of the tomb, it, it's like, as it were, he, he took the door off the hinges. And it's open. And the way to life and blessing is always open. It's never again to be closed to his people. Has he in anger shut the door of his compassion? No. He can't. Believing, friend, to answer these questions is to encourage our hearts. They're asked from a position of pain and difficult circumstances and incomprehensible circumstances. But when the light shines, the light of God's word shines, and when, when we have a mind clear enough to think straight, to answer these questions is to encourage our hearts. But I want to close with this. You'll have noticed, I'm sure, that in the answer to each of the six questions I've consistently spoken to Christians, to believers, and that's deliberate, because these answers that we've given tonight are for believers, and they're for believers only. We live in a world where people want to hear these sorts of answers. People want to hear of the love of God that, that can't cease and the compassion of God that can't be turned off. They, they want to hear of it. It is comfort. But they don't want to hear about the cost that's attached to it. It's illustrated by an article the Archbishop of Canterbury wrote over Easter. Now, you read the article and he said some wonderful things and I'll give you some of the wonderful things he said. And good Friday is good because on the cross... We see the goodness of God in the middle of the mess of our own creation. In the triumphal entry, we see the answer to suffering. The God that is coming isn't the God that the people expected or even wanted. Another point he says, the crisis moment is to choose to trust God, not wealth, strength, or our cleverness. That's all very good. But what he didn't mention was, was telling. And very classically Anglican, even modern day, evangelical. And it was the same. You remember with the, the um, marriage sermon of Harry and Meghan? It was wonderful. But what was not said was telling. Because in that article from the Archbishop of Canterbury, there's no mention of the mess that we've created, of what that mess is. There's no mention that God is offended by the human race and that our sin is a stench to him and that by ourselves we are utterly putrid to him. No mention of the fact that we are rebels. There's no mention of the unexpectedness of the Saviour dying to pay for sins. He talked about the Savior's not who they expected. The unexpectedness is that he had to come and die to pay 
for sin and endure God's wrath. There's no mention of that. There's no mention of the fact that to experience the blessings of God, we have to turn away from sin and disobedience and turn to trust God. And the problem is that that message is a message that people want to hear. Trust God. Here's the king that we don't expect. All those things he said, but there's another side to it. We are rebels and we must turn from our sin and we must come to him. So my point is, don't make that mistake tonight. There are many people in the world want to hear the comfort of these answers, but they do not want to turn from sin. They do not want to acknowledge that by themselves they are rebels against God. Don't make that mistake. The comfort of these answers is for those who turn from sin and trust in Christ. Who turn away from doing what offends him and have grief and, and sorrow over our rejection of him. So hear the comfort but also hear the other side because without repentance, without sorrow, there is no comfort. Amen.